last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from, the Philist from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the peoples. And they put his weapons in the temple of, Ashtar of Ashtaroth and they went and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead Jabesh heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. morning everybody um, we sang at that last song um, repeated a number of times the great I am the great I am the great I am he said demons can't stand before him that uh, that people can't stand before this great I am and I think it's really important to understand what we mean as Christians when we say the great I am the first thing that comes to mind is Exodus 3 the burning bush before anyone else I am and so that's the first thing you think of. But in biblical theology, as we go through, there's more to it. So I just wanted to read something before we begin to pray. In uh, John chapter 8, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They did not misunderstood what Jesus said. They, ex they understood exactly what he was claiming because the next verse says, so they s picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is the great I am. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. There's not a different God in the Old Testament, different God in the New Testament. He's not grumpy in the Old Testament and kind in the New. 
This is our God. This is Yahweh. And demons can't stand before him. And, and no authority or power or principality can stand before him. When he says his name, people fall back. That's the power of the God that we worship. Let's, let's turn to him in prayer this morning. Lord, given the text before us this morning, the, the discussion that we had in Sunday school, Lord, the culture, the time that we live in, um, Lord, I think it's very appropriate for us to remember who you are, that you haven't changed, you haven't stopped being who you are. And Lord, you have established all these things. You have called your church to live in this culture. And Lord, one of your commandments to us is to pray for those in authority. Timothy uh, or uh, Paul instructed Timothy, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all in high positions, that, they may lead, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of, our, uh, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Lord, we want to pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for President Biden and for Vice President Harris and for our congressmen and our congresswomen and all of the rulers at the national level that, that are in charge of all the things that go on. Lord, would you grant them clarity and wisdom to execute their office, their role, their sworn duty in a way that would be in harmony with what you desire government to do which is to secure peace, to reward good and punish evil. And Lord, however they do that, whatever that looks like in different cultures, different settings, different places, different times, Lord, we pray that our leaders now would be faithful to that by your work, by your power. And Lord, we pray that so that all people might be saved. All sorts of people all over the place might be saved. Father, we want to pray also for our state, for those in authority in the state of California, for Governor Newsom, for all the senators that are president in Sacramento, for all of the people who are leading the state of California. Lord, we pray the same thing. Lord, would you grant them wisdom? Whether they know you or not, whether they acknowledge you or not, Lord, they are in your hand. And, and the Proverbs say that, the king, that God directs the heart of the king as a man channels water. And Lord, so you can direct these, these unrighteous, the righteous, the, the evil, the kind. Lord, you can, account, you can direct them all to accomplish your purposes. And so we pray for them, Lord, that they would be wise and careful. Lord, that they would reflect a little more deeply than just what will get them reelected and, and see things that are important as they care for people who are made in your image. And so, Lord, would you be with the leaders in California? And, and guide them well. And Lord, we want to pray for the leaders in our, in our, um, um, our county here, especially in the Antelope Valley. So the, the leaders in Palmdale and Lancaster and Rosamond and Little Rock and all of those places, Lord, for our, our municipalities. And Lord, we ask the same thing. They, they have lesser authority. They have lesser resources. But Lord, they have a more direct impact on what we actually do day to day. And so, Lord, we pray for them that you would grant them peace, that you would grant them clarity of sight. Lord, that you would develop in them a vision for what the Antelope Valley could be, a place of prosperity and peace, a place of security, a place where families can grow and, and communities can flourish. And so, Lord, would you grant them that vision and grant them the wisdom to execute that vision? 
And Lord, we want that because we want to live quiet and dignified lives. We want to see all people come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. So would you use those governmental authorities to accomplish that in the Antelope Valley? And Lord, we pray for our local churches, for all the scattered churches around the Antelope Valley, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who trust in what the scriptures say, who are trying their best to bring the gospel light to the nations. Lord, we pray that you will have secured all of these things for all of us, that we can live those quiet, dignified lives, that we might preach the gospel that you've commissioned us to preach. And Lord, that we would see an increased number of people here in the Antelope Valley come to worship and to know you. Lord, would you begin to fill your churches here as the national trend is away from religion, is away from organized religion, is away from uh, church attendance. Lord, would you stymie those, those statistics here in the Antelope Valley? Lord, would you do that in us? Would you do that in, in this church and help us to, to fill to the brim with people who want to know more about you? Lord, we long for that, that vision that uh, we saw in Isaiah where the, the nations would come and grab the robe of a Jew and say, we want to know your God. Lord, would you bring that about with Christians where people want to come and to know you? And so, Lord, may we be faithful with what you've given to us. May we lead quiet and dignified lives. And, Lord, may we be faithful to the commission of preaching the gospel, of making disciples of all the nations. And uh, would you allow that to happen here? Lord, I think this is really important, like I said, in light of everything that we're going to see this morning and, and uh, just our lives in general as we walk out of church on Sunday, as we walk into work on Tuesday and all of those things, Lord, there's, there's just so much that we need to process. And so, Lord, would you use your, the power of your word, which will not return to you void, to conform our hearts and minds to your desire and your plan for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we have regional gatherings with the Free Church. So I, about quarterly, I go down to Faith Community Church in Newhall and pastors come from other churches in the area and some representatives from the district will join us and we just share together what's going on how can we pray for you what's happening in your church this is really an encouraging time to just get together with others who are in the same kind of boat that we are and um, I don't remember what it was it was a number of uh, meetings ago uh, our district superintendent Tim Jacobs um, we don't usually have a lot of interaction with those folks and you know it's like as long as they don't bother me I'm okay and you know we'll send you the money and just be nice uh, but Tim came, he's a younger guy, Air Force captain, so immediately I liked him, you know. Um, and so as we were chatting, we were going around and discussing, well, what are you guys preaching on? What's, what's going on? I said, well, I'm preaching through 1 Samuel. And the reason I'm preaching through 1 Samuel is because I think when you look at evangelicalism at large in America, we're very confused. We have tied up our politics into too much of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And so I wanted to go to the, the book of uh, 1 Samuel to show what it looks like in the kingdom versus the kingdoms of man. And, and I wanted to say our hope needs to be fixed on the kingdom of God as we exist in the kingdom of man. And I remember Tim's response was, wow, that's powerful. And I thought, yeah, I think it is. I, th I think God's word is like that. So when we come here to the end of the book, we come to chapter 31, um, it was really a downer of a reading, wasn't it? Everybody dies. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy. Everybody dies in the end. But I think there's, there's an important message here for us. There's a lot going on in this. And, and I, what I hope that this will do is to show us the frailty of human rule. We can't put our hope, we can't put our long-term hope in, in, in the frailty of human rule um, that's not going to satisfy in the end. We have to be driven towards that other kingdom, that kingdom of God, that kingdom that's in breaking. 
And so that's why I'm grateful for 1 Samuel and for the way it goes. So let's take a look at this kind of a downer of a chapter and, and see what the Lord has for us. I think there's actually some really good encouraging news in here. It begins with the phrase, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That, that word now is not actually in the Hebrew. What is there is it says Philistines and it says in a preposition or proposi prepositional form, fighting. That's an odd way for in Hebrew to start a sentence. What it means is not, you know, now this was happening. It's at the same time or as is currently going on. What the author is doing is he's tying chapter 31 to the section before. And remember, I said those last four chapters are one story. And I think our author is making that abundantly clear. So as we analyze, as we look through chapter 31, we have to go back to the stories that were before it. He's continuing that on. He's, he's going forward with that. It's just going to continue at that pace. Um, there's something about the end of the book as well, the end of the chapter. Um, in Hebrew, the, e the chapter ends with what's called the letter pay. And what the Hebrew letter pay, when it's just by itself, what that means is it's a paragraph break. End of the paragraph, next one is a new paragraph. That's important because 1 Samuel seems to end on this depressing note and just leaves us hanging. But the Talmud, which was the, the Hebrew, the, the, the uh, Jewish writings that interpreted and, and commented on the scriptures, only referred to the book of Samuel, not First and Second Samuel. So in the original Hebrew, this is one book. First and Second Samuel is just Samuel. So why break it here? Why does it break at this point? Well, first of all, it's a good place to break it because there's a paragraph break. The text says, stop here. But it gets broken into two books because a couple of centuries before Jesus was born, some Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew into Greek because there was more people speaking Greek. And as it turns out, the length of the scroll they wrote on ended about this spot. And so this is where the book ended. And since the uh, invention of what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it's been broken into two books. So though this sounds like a bummer, it, the, the story actually just continues. The author just keeps moving right on through. But we're going to stop here. We're going to break it where this does, and, and we're going to handle this as the end of the book. This is not the end of the story. This is simply the end of Saul. Okay, so let's, let's not take our eyes off that. How does it go for good old Saul? Well, if you see in, a, in, a, in the scriptures repetition, if things are repeated, um, that usually indicates something important because papyrus and ink and those kind of things were at a premium. And so you wrote what you needed to write. You didn't go into a lot of detail if you didn't need a lot of detail. When there's repetition, the author means something with that. There's some reason for it. So look at the repetition in chapter 31. The word Philistine occurs eight times. What's most notable is four of those times, half the times are in the first two verses. The Philistines gets repeated over and over again, right up front. What are we supposed to see? This is the Philistines. When we're speaking of Israel, the word flee occurs four times. They fled over and over and over again. It says that they fled. The name Israel, or the, uh, the, the uh, word die applied to Israel three times. And then the word strip comes up at the last and the second half twice. Put those words together. What is the image that we're seeing here? The Philistines stripped. Israel fled, Israel died. It's, it's not a happy picture. It, it's not a good way of looking at this, but there's more to it than that. So this is the final act 
in, uh, in Saul's life. This is the end of the road for Saul. And what we're seeing here is, is in the book, we see that um, the way that it breaks out is uh, verses one through six is uh, they died in one day is kind of the theme. This is fulfills what Samuel had said. Remember when Saul went and woke Samuel from the dead, that fulfills that. And then verse seven is the results. What happened because of they all died in one day. Then the second half of the, the story is verses eight and nine uh, their bodies were stripped or uh, mistreated or something like that. That fulfills Saul's word at the beginning here. And then verses 11 through 13 are what are the results. So we're getting an action and results, action and results. The chronology here is all over the map because that's not what's important. What's important is the themes. So this is Saul's final act. As I said, this, this is the fulfillment of Samuel's words. Let me remind you of Samuel's words. This is when Saul against better judgment, against wisdom, went and he found a necromancer. He, he found a soothsayer. He found a witch in Endor in order to get a word from God because God wasn't speaking to him. And so Samuel shows up, terrifies everybody in the room that Samuel is there. And Samuel says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Samuel, the ghost, told um, Saul exactly what was going to happen. In one day, tomorrow, that day, it's going to happen. So this is actually after the events of chapter 28. The following morning, they engage in battle. And what happens? The Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on the Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Aminadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. So far, we've got men fallen slain, and now Saul's just lost his three sons. The sun is not yet set. It's still going on. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Archers in those days were the artillery. Artillery is desirable in modern warfare because you can launch great harm at great distances. You don't have to be up close to inflict harm. You can launch it from a cannon and, or from cruise missiles from a, a destroyer or something. That's the artillery. This was the artillery of the day. The archers could stand back, shoot up in the air, and a, and a volley, a, a rainfall of arrows would fall down on your enemies. And so what's happened is they have, the, the Philistines have advanced very rapidly. They killed um, his, uh, Saul's three sons. The people of Israel are at flight, and so the archers start lobbing arrows towards them, take out more people, as many as they can. And it says the archers found Saul. There is no place for him to flee. He's badly wounded. He's, he's dying, and he knows it. There's, there's no medicine that's going to save him at this point. He's lost. He has been destroyed. And so he tells his armor bearer, run me through. Kill me. 
He knows what's coming. The Philistines are going to overtake him. They're going to find him dead. He doesn't want to be alive when they show up. Just kill me. He says, I don't want them to abuse my body. I don't want them to maltreat me. And his, his armor bearer, it says, is greatly afraid. He's absolutely terrified. I will not put my hand against him. I'm, I'm not sure what to do. We're, we're losing the battle, and I'm not going to kill the king. Who, who would that be? Who would that make me? And so Saul then falls on his sword, probably set the butt into the ground, leaned it up under his armor, and fell forward into it. He was already dying. It was just make it happen faster. And then the tragedy is his armor bearer sees that he did not protect his sovereign. He did not protect the king. The king is dead, and so the man does the same. Then Saul died, and verse 6 really sums it all up. Then Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Samuel's word has been fulfilled. They've all died in that same day. Why? Why did they have to die? Why did it have to come to this? Well, God had told him when, when Samuel spoke, he said, he has taken the kingdom from you, and he's given it to David. Why did he do that? because Saul would not destroy the Amalekites. If you remember the story, they went in, they attacked the Amalekites, they won a wonderful battle. But Saul kept the king alive. And as they're returning from the battle, they were told everything is devoted to destruction. Everything in the Amalekite city is burned, is destroyed, and they come back with the best of the sheep and the goats. He didn't do what he was told. This is not just incidental. This isn't, oh, he had made a bad decision one day. His commission from the time he was anointed, was that he would deliver Israel. That was the role of the king, and he didn't do it. So here's the hard question. Why did, why did Jonathan have to die? Why did, he have, why did he get caught up in this? Jonathan is the only other good man we see in this. David and Jonathan were knit together. Jonathan is looking at David and saying, I, I am anxious for your throne. I'm looking forward to you ascending to the throne and me standing at your right side. I know this kingdom has been torn from my father. He doesn't even want it. He would be the rightful heir to it, and he doesn't want it. So why did he have to die? I don't know. But think of a Christian in your life that, who's passed away. Maybe somebody who, who battled cancer or was killed in an accident or died in some horrific way. Why did they have to die? I don't know. But what we can be assured of is this wasn't God's cruel intention. It wasn't God let Jonathan slip through. God had announced beforehand Jonathan was going to die at this day. And so it's, it's, it's not a cruel irony that God would do that. It was part of his sovereign plan. He intended for that to happen. It's just hard to take. So when we look at this battle, what we see is suddenly it all comes together on Jonathan, or on Saul. Um, he's lost everything, including his own life. So Saul's armor bearer has taken his own life, and then we get that, that brutal summary. So then what comes next is that, here we go, um, Verse 7 is the results of this, what came of it. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, how did they see this? 
Well, Mount Gilboa, where it faces, where it's situated, if you look from across the valley of Jezreel, you can see the mountain. You can see the mountainside. And it's also visible to the east, to the Jordan and beyond. So what these people are, remember, they didn't have binoculars or telescopes or anything in that day, but they could see the battle raging. And so what I would imagine they see is, as it starts, here's Saul's banner and here's the Philistine banner, and they start moving together. And they can't see all the particulars, but suddenly Saul's banner falls. Oh, no, this doesn't look good. And then that Philistine banner just keeps moving forward and keeps moving forward. And so they see that they, they, they've lost. This is an obvious indicator that they've lost. And so it says, the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. That didn't happen in 10 minutes. That, that happened the day when they saw that happen, but it took them a while to flee. And then the next sentence is, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The Philistines didn't just march out of the hills, sit down and go, I'm home. They had to go get their family, their possessions and everything. This takes months for them to come in. But the point is, the result of Saul's defeat was now the land is occupied by Philistines again. Remember the beginning of the book? There was a garrison in, Philist in, in Israel. And Jonathan went and fought against it. The Philistines now have this center stripe across the top of Israel. They're dividing the upper tribes from Benjamin and Judah. They've split the nation. This is bad. This is, this is a bad situation. And the people fled. They were terrified. They saw what happened to their mighty army. There's nobody now to defend them. The only thing to do is to leave. This is the mere opposite of what happened in Ziklag, isn't it? In Ziklag, the army leaves. They go north. They're going to muster with the uh, Philistines. The Amalekites come in and take the city of Ziklag. When David returns, he doesn't flee. He chases them, and he winds up recovering his city. This, in this case, it's the exact opposite. The Philistines or the uh, Israelites saw that their city was lost, and they left, and the Philistines came and lived in it. Philistines move into Israel. Now you get David living in Philistine territory. There's just this mirroring of what's going on. David was afraid, too. David heard that his men were, very in, were greatly in distress and were talking about stoning him. Saul saw that the battle was lost, that he was wounded, he was going to die. The two men react in very different ways. Saul falls on his sword. There's nothing better for me than death. What does David do? David turned to the Lord. He said, bring the ephod. Let me inquire. What is God going to have me to do? You see the difference of these two approaches to ruling. There's, there's a huge disjunction going on here. And the result is David recovers Ziklag. Saul loses a big stripe through the middle of his country and his own life. So that's the result of this. That's, that's the, the, the flowing out of this. That's what happened. So this is this, this story, this, this brutal short, punctuated story, it's about the failure of Saul's kingdom. It's about the, the, the falling of Saul's kingdom. But don't forget Saul. Don't, we can look at Saul and go, oh, they got the wrong guy in office. Saul was anointed of God. God had called Saul to be the king. He told Samuel, tomorrow a Benjamite is going to show up, anoint him to be king. God did that. God anointed him. God put his spirit on him temporarily. And so this was God's king in a fashion. He was actually the people's king. David is going to be God's king. But his rule was not illegitimate. 
It wasn't wrong for Saul to be the king. But it wasn't going to be ultimate. It wasn't going to carry the whole thing forward. This wasn't going to work. This was a king after the people's own intentions, not the king after God's own heart. And so ultimately, it comes crashing down. It fails. This is the problem with human rule, is when we look, we figure out who we think is the best person for the office, and that's who we vote for. Or the queen looks and says, who is next in line for the throne, and puts that person on the throne. Or however the transition happens through all of these human governments, and we can look at it and go, well, that's not legitimate. I'm not a big fan of King Charles. I was hoping that Queen Elizabeth would skip him. But that's not my call. And what I have to look and say is, this is how it worked out. This is how it happened, not accidentally. So we mentioned this in Sunday school this morning. I want to read it again, Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Who? Only governing authorities we like. No, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Why, Paul? Why should we be subject? They're bad people. For no authority, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Why was Saul on the throne? Very clearly from 1 Samuel, Saul was on the throne because God installed him there. It was not God's purpose that he stay there. His days were numbered, but he installed him and he put him there for a reason. So when we look to human governments, whatever it is, whatever form of government we're looking for, understand it's there because God put it there. Whether we like it, whether we despise it, whether it's, it's what we consider to be the right way to run the world or the wrong way, God has put it there. And so we're called to be subject, not submissive, not dominated, but subject to those authorities. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's frightening. That's a little troubling. But what I think Paul is aiming for and what I think 1 Samuel is showing us is don't put your hope in those institutions. Subject yourself to them. Fall in line for them. Do what we did this morning. Pray diligently for them. But don't put your hope in them. The, the human role, the human tragedy is, is ultimately going to fail you. Or fail you. The, the, the government that's in place will ultimately fail you. Why? Because there's sinners involved. We're going to screw it up at some point. So as long as there's a sinner involved, that, that, that's where we're going to be. So then how are we supposed to live? There's a famous book by Francis Schaeffer. How then should we live? If, if we have this government which is going off the rails and this culture which is losing its cotton-picking mind, how are we supposed to live here? Well, fortunately, we have a lot of instruction on that. We have a wonderful chapter in the Bible called the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells you how to live that way. Abraham dwelt in Canaan. Centuries before Abraham, God announced Canaan is going to be cursed. And Abraham was commanded, go dwell there. Not go hive off and find your own little uh, sanctuary. Go dwell in the land. Canaan is cursed, but you're going to inherit it. He traded with them. That's how he got to be so stinking rich, is he was trading with them. He was raising sheep. He was selling them. He was selling the, the products. He engaged in commerce with them. He joined their army when the five kings invaded and captured Sodom and Gomorrah and took Lot. He joined their army and went off and recovered those things. He even went so far as to buy a burial plot there. But he never became a Canaanite. 
He always remains separate, always distant. So we can be good Americans. We can live in this nation. We can live it within Western culture. We can trade here. We can build our wealth here. We can buy property here. We can even engage in the politics of the time. But we must never see this as our ultimate home. As great as America is, it's not all that. And so here's how uh, Peter explains it. This is what Peter wants us to aim for. How do we live in this world? Look where he's looking. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So when we look at the the governments of the world, what we see is sometimes they just accomplish wonderful things, great, amazing things. Roman roads, go study Roman roads. They are still standing. Roman government did some wonderful, amazing things. You know me, I'm a science nerd. Go back and watch the Apollo program. We went to the cotton-picking moon. We left this planet. We did some amazing, tremendous things. Humanity is capable of that. We, we, we can do that. And we are capable of horrendous tragedy. We enslaved Africans, not because they owed us anything, but because they were easy to go steal. And we drug them here, and we would not let them benefit from the labors of their their wealth. And then when we finally decided they didn't have to be slaves, we said, okay, but you can't join us. And we instituted Jim Crow. I mentioned the Native Americans. We We have deceived and swindled the Native Americans repeatedly throughout our history. We put them on a plot of land. Hey, that's really nice. You got some good stuff there. We're taking it back. Repeatedly, over and over again. You could just keep multiplying our sins. We've had tremendous, tremendous successes. We've had horrible failures. And so what we wind up with is the left and the right today, and we're we're arguing about what's the best way forward. Do we do more of this or less of that? How do we get there? Here's what's going on. I think what's happening is both the left and the right are desiring the same thing. We're both desiring what's best for people. What we disagree on is what that is and how to get there. But when we see these tremendous successes and we're gravitating towards those, it is wonderful that we've had this. Isn't it great that Roe was overturned and, and, and all of these other wonderful things? We, ex- we get excited about that, and then we see their failures and we get mad about that. What it is is God has is, is tuned our hearts. He's built our hearts to desire that good and godly kingdom that only Jesus Christ is going to bring in. And so when this world lines up with that, we get excited. And when it drifts from that, we, we aim away from it. Where we get into trouble is when we're arguing about what's the best way to accomplish those things. Well, the best way is for Jesus to come back and rule. We just have to wait for that. In the meantime, we're going to wrestle and figure it out. So how should we live then as people in this present age? Is is not putting our hope in getting it right, but instead putting our hope in what is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, that age that's coming. We long for it. We get a taste of it. We feel it now, and it's coming. And so while we're under Saul, it's going to be a mess. It just is. We're waiting for David to come. We're waiting for David to come and rule over us. Saul can't deliver. 
that new heavens and that new earth. Democracy can't deliver, deliver that new heavens and that new earth. I think democracy is the best way to run the world with a bunch of sinners, put them in competition. Hopefully we'll find a good way forward. I'm not dissing democracy. Democracy will not bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Socialism will not bring about the new heavens and the new earth. It's been tried. It fails pretty miserably, repeatedly. Fascism, putting the right strong man in place, will not bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And even in the book of, of Samuel, when we get to David, he does pretty well. But he fails pretty spectacularly, too. This is the danger of putting our hope in these frail and broken human systems. And so we can't put our hope there. We can't decide that that's where we're going to go. Don't look towards that. So that's that first part. That's, that's this fall of Saul. So the next part, what happens? Well, the next day. Now we've backed up. We went back to the story again. Um, the next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain. That was a common practice in war. That's how you made your money, is you risked everything. You went out in a fight. And then once you won, you go and see what's the good stuff that's laying around. Hey, I got a new sword. Hey, this guy had some money on him. So they go out to strip the slain, and they find Saul and his three sons slain on Mount Gilboa. Look at what we found. We got the king. So Saul's word is now going to come to pass. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. We beat Israel. Not only did we beat Israel, we killed the king. Not only did we kill the king, we killed his sons. We had a great day in battle. I think when it says that this good news was uh, spread is I think they took his head and his armor and marched it through the Philistine territory to show off what they had done. Um, this is slightly reminiscent of something that came before. Who else carried a head around and put armor in special places? David, when he came out to a, notable, a noticeably larger Philistine, he cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. Eventually, it's not there yet. Jerusalem's still not part of Israel, but eventually that head is going to wind up in Jerusalem. He took his armor and put it in his own tent. This has now happened to, to uh, Saul. The abuse that he was afraid of has finally fallen on him. And they took the good news to the house of their idols. They brought the stuff into the idol. What happened to the Philistines last time they won a battle against Israel and carried some stuff and stuck it in the temple? It did not go well. Uh, Dagon fell on his face, and then Dagon fell and broke into pieces before the Ark of God. So they haven't learned their lesson. They're still dragging Israel loot into the temple, but this is the picture. This is the result of what's happened. They've put that there, but it gets worse. But when the inhabitants, oh, so, um, so they cut off his head, they stripped his stuff, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. So can you imagine a naked, headless body nailed to a wall as a trophy, as a symbol of our triumph? Look at what we do to foreign kings who oppose us. But what we'll find out in a moment is it wasn't just Saul's body up there. It was his son's as well. They're celebrating their victory. Look at how great we are. They're, they're gloating in what they've done. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, the valiant men arose and went all night. So there were some that didn't go into battle. There were some valiant men left, some men of good character. They went all night, and at great personal cost, at the danger of being killed, 
they went and they took the bodies off the wall. They brought them back to Jabesh Gilead. They burned the bodies and buried the, the bones and then buried them under a tamarisk tree. Have we heard tamarisk tree before? Saul had a habit of sitting under tamarisk trees with his spear in his hand looking all regal and important. Now he's buried under one. And they fasted seven days. Thus ends the story of Saul. He is now laid in the tomb. He's joined Saul or Samuel in the, in the place of the dead, and they're done. So what are we supposed to do with this? What do we do with this story? How, how does this story inform us? Well, first of all, I think the, the lesson we, we talked about earlier about not putting your ultimate hope in, in governmental systems is a wise one. Men will always let you down, I guarantee it. Human beings will always fail you at some point. And the higher you put them up, the greater the failure, the greater the disappointment. So that's, that's that lesson. But look at Saul and what happened to him. What's, what's going on here? This is, I think Saul represents those human governments, the best that we can do, the best we can come up with. Whereas David is going to represent the kingdom of God that's going to come. But David doesn't represent that just by being David. He represents that by having a certain grandson who will come and take the throne. And so consider the way these two hang, uh, these, these two stories stack up. Contrast the rejected king with the eternal one. Jesus was handed over to the nations. The Jews gave him to the, to the Greeks, to the Romans. His body was hung as an object of scorn and shame in an apparent triumph of evil. A good man came and collected his body and gave him a decent burial. So he's kind of the, the antithesis of what happens to Saul. But here's the great news. Jesus really did enter our, into our distress. He entered into our shame. He entered into our failure. He took on our sin. He experienced the worst of human government, and it killed him. Whereas Saul's bones are still someplace, Jesus rose again from the dead. Our greater king had a greater victory than Saul ever could. That's the hope. That's where we need to keep putting our hope is in that kingdom that is to come. We're not trying to establish it on earth. We're not trying to make America into the new Israel. What we're trying to do is be good and faithful in the midst of this, anticipating. And I love the way Peter says, and hastening the day that Jesus returns. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and reign over us. Come and rule over us. The people said, we want a king like the nations. And God said to Saul, don't be mad. They didn't reject you. They've rejected me. And so we're doing the opposite. We're saying, well, yeah, the government's nice. We want a king to rule over us, not like the nations. We want the true and the good king. We want the real king. Human governments will only take you so far. That's the lesson we get from the first part of this, the book of Samuel. Human government will only take you so far, and then it will let you down. It, it, the, these people will get into positions of power and authority and money and rule and all of that, and it eventually will get to their heads because sin is still in their heart. We need a king on the throne whose sin cannot touch. I got a name for you. I know a guy, and he's coming. This is the great news. What I want to wrap up the book of 1 Samuel with this admonition is, again, participate. Be a member of this society. Be like Abraham. We're engaged, we're involved, we're working here, but don't connect to this as if this is the ultimate good. Look forward to and hasten the coming of our Lord. 
look forward to that. How do we hasten the coming of God? Jesus said, no man knows the day or hour in which he's going to return, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father. So how can we hasten it? What are we going to do? Well, I think the answer is pretty much what Jesus told us to do. Go make disciples. Right? Because he said, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. How do the fullness of the Gentiles come in? Where do the fullness of the Gentiles come into? We call them into the kingdom. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the day will come. That's how you hasten the coming of the Lord. You want Jesus here quicker? Go make more disciples. That's the promise. That's the hope, not in the, the right politics, but in the return of our, our great and glorious king. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I 